welcome back to the Gnostic Informant, and you are about to attain true Gnosis. And today I got Dr. Bob, Robert M. Price, coming to join us. We're going to talk about the origins of Christianity, get into some mythicism versus historicism debate. Also, extend the timeline a little bit, and let's talk about how did Christianity take over the entire West? How did Europe become Christianized? How did Constantine get converted? All that stuff. We're going to talk about that. So send in some super chats for questions, and I'll answer those. Also, just ask a question. If I see it, I'll answer it if I could. We are still waiting for Dr. Bob, who is almost going to be here any second now. But while we're waiting, I figured I should uh, let people know that I do have a Patreon. And um, if you like what I do and just want to support, you can throw a dollar if you want. Or you can throw $5 if it really helped me out. And I uh, just want to get that thing going. People who are already patrons that are watching, thank you very much for everything. It's because of you people like you who I can get a hold of Bart Ehrman and have him have him on for interviews. Otherwise, I wouldn't be able to. So, uh, yeah, I use that. I use my, any support that I get for the channel, not for myself, but just for the channel to, to grow the channel. Um, and uh, let's see what the chat's saying already. And we have Jojo Freelancer. Hey, what's going on, buddy? Is there evidence that Christianity was born in the first century, second century podcast? And what do people mean if they say that Josephus mentioned Jesus? Dr. Bob will be here any second now, and we'll be able to answer that question. That'll be the first one we go to, unless I miss something. But, um, but yeah, he is on his way. I just spoke with him. But, yeah, the question about Christianity in the first century and what it was like, because... It's a good question because a lot of the manuscripts for the New Testament are from the new, second century. And the question is, is this exactly copied exactly how it's supposed to be in the first century? A lot of textual critics will say probably yes. Bart Ehrman says that. But we don't know for sure at the same time. There could be a lot of interpolations. There could be some editing. We don't know. We don't have first century manuscripts of the New Testament. So it's a question that we have to just put our faith in that the uh, translators and editors copied exactly what they got handed down to them. Um, yeah. So Dr. Bob should be here any second now, but how's ever There he is. And he is ready to go. He's looks like he's getting his, uh, his coat ready. And uh, there he is. Uh -huh. Hey, Dr. Bob, how you doing today? Okay. Well, how about you? Good, good. So we're talking about origins of Christianity. <clears throat> All the way from the beginning, if, if the historicity versus mythicism question, I want to talk about that as much as possible. But I also want to extend the timeline to how it became the Western worldview, the Western religion in general, all of Europe, all of Greece, all of Spain, all of them converting to Christianity. That's the big question. How does, that, how does a small little sect of Jews that think this guy's the Messiah, who no one knows who he is, Pliny the Elder writes an encyclopedia, in that area, he misses this guy. So obviously he's not that big. But all of a sudden, decades go by, and all of a sudden this guy becomes the most important figure in Western civilization, in the world maybe. And that's the real question. Hmm. So if you want to open up with, you know, just a rundown of what, how, what you think, and then we'll get to some questions. Well, first of all, I'd like to uh, recommend a couple of books that get into this in more detail 
uh, and with more sophistication than an idiot like me can uh, muster. Um, one is uh, Rodney Stark's great book, The Rise of Christianity, uh, where he, uh, he, this guy's a sociologist, as anyone who recognizes his name will know, he's a major one. He, for some reason, got interested in this question of uh, how did Christianity succeed and at what rate? And he found that uh, if you, well, that, that there was no mystery about how Christianity grew as fast as it did, uh, because he says a couple of other modern movements where we have more information to answer such a question uh, uh, indicate, and the, the two he picked were the Unification Church, the, the Moonies, uh, and uh, the Mormons, Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. And he said that these uh, people uh, grew for various reasons, but at the same, uh, uh, at a certain rate, uh, by a certain time. And he said, if you compare that with Christianity, uh, it's really the same. Uh, the, the same. It implies the same conversion rate uh, within the same time period. And then he goes on to explain, much as uh, E.R. Dodds did in a book called uh, Pagan and Christian in an Age of Anxiety, which was another one people ought to read, uh, there are identifiable reasons that uh, Christianity became very popular. And uh, the I'd recommend both books, uh, they, they kind of cover the same ground, but with uh, fascinating different uh, differences in detail. And before I get on to the, uh, the other one, uh, these guys say that we can tell, for instance, um, that uh, Christianity had a good birth rate. There were a lot of Christians being born and raised, and part of this had to do with the fact that they did not believe in infanticide, which everybody else did. Uh, they uh, would, I mean, we, we have uh, letters written home during this period by pagans. Uh, one guy's a businessman traveling, and his wife was expecting uh, and uh, he wants an update, and he says, well, if it's a boy, name him so-and-so, but if it's a girl, just put her out to the curb. What the hell? Uh, this was very common. Uh, they figured, I, I don't need that many mouths to feed, especially well, sons are one thing, but daughters, if you got a whole bunch of those, it's just like uh, pride and prejudice, you know, where the, uh, the difficulty is that the guy has uh, four, or what is it, uh, to, I guess, at least uh, five daughters and no sons, and who's going to inherit the place and so forth. Well, they were worried about that, too. And they said, suppose I can't find husbands for all of them. And if there's a bunch, uh, it may be tough. Well, uh, I'm stuck with them and with that many mouths to feed forever. I, I can't risk that. And so they would uh, have the, the girls just exposed uh, out in the middle of nowhere like Oedipus was or uh, actually thrown out with the trash as, as horrific as this sounds. Right. Uh, it's just the way those of us who are against abortion feel that this is a, a horrendous crime against humanity barbarism and uh, Christians wouldn't buy it 
By the way, neither would Muslims when they came along. And one of the early surahs in the Quran is very powerful. And it says on the judgment day, when, when the dead rise, the little girls will, will, will ask, why were they put to death? Woo-hoo, boy, uh, really striking. And uh, but this was and this continued uh, on into the next few centuries, like St. Augustine in one sermon said that. Um, uh, wait a minute, did I just lose my connection here? You're, still with, you're still with us. Oh, OK. Yeah. yeah. Um, as he said that one good reason Christian men should not go to brothels is they might wind up having sex with their own daughters because <laughs> uh, pimps uh, would were heroes. They would often cruise the streets and pick up female babies and, and raise them to be prostitutes. Thank God if there's a God. Uh, and uh, uh, life as a prostitute, I gather, is probably not all that great, but it sure beats being dead. Uh, right. And uh, so this, so this shows you that for a long time, uh, it, in exposing infant girls was was a practice. Now, um, the the fact that Christians wouldn't do that. Uh, they did buckle down on getting husbands for their daughters, and uh, they couldn't be too picky. So uh, they would often marry them off to uh, pagans that didn't seem to be drunks or wife beaters or something. Right, right. And uh, the the uh, you heard of the missionary position? Well, uh, the the missionary and missionary dating. That's what happened here. Often the, the Christian women would. Um, pester their uh, husbands or just convince them uh, to become Christians. Wow. And uh, that's uh, because like it was common for uh, women to be part of mystery religions that their husbands didn't know about. Well, sometimes I guess they got them converted, but these women did with uh, with non-Christians to become Christian. This is discussed in First uh, Peter and in First Corinthians. So there's, there's no mystery. There's no question that that happened. So yeah. that would beef up the population. Uh, another thing is that... Um, that uh, Christians were well known even to their enemies who who uh, found, were chagrined by this as people that would, um, um, well, manumit slaves for one thing. They would take up money to, to buy the freedom of slaves. And uh, they, there were even liturgies for this. Uh, and uh, so uh, they would, uh, they didn't challenge slavery. That would have been a hopeless thing. Um, even in paganism, we though we do have philosophers that said, like Stoics, who said that men and women are equal and so forth. Uh, you could never really have challenged that on a, a empire-wide or a political way. Um, uh, but the uh, the uh, but they would buy slaves and then free them. Okay, that's one thing. Uh, another was they engaged in relief efforts, and they didn't care whether you were Christian, a Jew, or a pagan. Uh, 
there were all as stark shows there was an unbelievable amount of disasters in the ancient mediterranean world because of constant earthquakes and poorly necessarily poorly built tenements that would collapse and crush people inside well when this stuff happened christians would uh, get out there and and uh, look for survivors and treat the the injured and all that and uh, Julian the Apostate, the, the Roman emperor who uh, some emperors down the line tried to reestablish paganism and to right. get people to deconvert from Christianity, he made this very telling remark. He says, those damn Christians are out there in a few minutes helping people while our uh, priests and so forth are just headed for the hills wow. uh, if only we could get this kind of commitment oh my gosh uh tertullian says that um, that um, non-christians were very impressed with the courage of christian martyrs uh, and he says they're surprised that that we're able to do this and and Apparently, he's telling the truth about uh, pagan admiration for Christians. And Dodds, for instance, says that that uh, that is uh, probably behind what Tertullian said, that the, the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church, that people would look at these people and these Christians and say, you know, I'm a member of uh, four different cults and I got to pay my way in there uh, to uh, hope one of them will give me salvation. Well, anybody that does that can't have much confidence in any one of them. Uh, it's what Stark called a, uh, a, a uh, diversified portfolio of salvation, uh, whereas Christians said, no, uh, no, I'm afraid, at least most of them as it was growing, said, no, if you're going to come with us, it's got to be just Jesus Christ. Uh, you you got to believe in him. And if you really do, you don't need these punks like uh, Mithras, these Palookas like, uh, you know, Osiris and all that. That's a lot of baloney. Uh, we've got the, the real Christ. Do you want to follow him? Because if it's, if it's him, it's only him. And so every time a pagan converted uh, to Christianity, it wasn't just that Christianity got a new one, but uh, possibly several other faiths lost one. Wow. And so none of this is surprising demographically. And none I was just, of it takes a miracle. I was just going to say Paul's writings too sort of sort of uh, reemphasize this, where he talks about in Romans not caring about if you get if you're in front of if you're at a dinner and they they sacrifice the meat to a, an idol, who cares? Don't bother them. Let them do what they got to do. Just be a Christian. Like he's basically telling them to like mingle with the pagans and do yeah. Be like pagans for a little while and then try to convert them. And like you could see how this would be very strategically important going forward as what you're saying. Yeah, that's right. He 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 brings up a kind of a tough point, kind of a almost a rabbinic point. He says, you and I know that if you're going to one of these feasts and they bring out a piece of meat that was uh, sold by the priest because there was too much by way of sacrifice, um, and uh, they don't happen to mention that that's where they got the steak. Don't you ask? Right. Because right. you and I know it's it's just, you know, all you can eat buffet at the local uh, Applebee's or whatever the heck. Right. Uh, and this, if they do say, hey, I got a great deal on this down at the Temple of Apollos, 
geez, I wish you hadn't said that because this could cause problems with the people in my church saying, what are you, a syncretist? It's okay, you think, to go to be a part of that religion too? Now, you know that's not what you're doing, but they don't, so maybe you better be careful. Nonetheless, you know, otherwise it's just me. Um, yet another thing that in that um, encouraged Christian church growth was uh, the fact that, um, well, it was like the God-fearers, the, the, the pious Gentiles, as Jews called them, people that said, look, I, I don't want to get circumcised. I don't want to adjust to a kosher uh, dietary regimen, but I think you guys are right. Your ethical monotheism, you don't have a God like Zeus that goes around raping women. Uh, you don't have these embarrassing uh, stories that Plato complained about too. He says, "You don't want this to be the uh, the the uh, role model for believers." And so yeah. they said, "Could we go to synagogue and hear your scriptures read and so on?" And they said, yeah, sure, come on. Uh, and uh, that's why there was this gigantic court of the Gentiles in the Jerusalem Temple. You know well, what the heck were Gentiles doing? They liked Judaism. Judaism was very popular, and some uh, um, people that probably didn't even attend synagogue among the Romans did uh, embrace Jewish mores, and that's what Judaizing originally meant. Uh, I think the Sabbath is a pretty good idea. What say we do it? Uh, and, and so forth. Well, if you were a, a God-fearer, Christianity might well have... Uh, uh, appealed to you because you couldn't really become a Jew unless you were going to be a proselyte, the whole nine yards. Uh, but you couldn't, so so you weren't really a member. You were just a friendly visitor. Well, in Christianity, you didn't have to do that, but it was still based on the same Bible, uh, plus added uh, stuff. And so a lot of them probably, I mean, even Acts tells us that, that, that God-fearers joined up like Cornelius and so on. Uh, and um, for Jews, there were, you know, there were like two-thirds, uh, well, I think it's twice as many Jews in the diaspora that is settled around the Mediterranean speaking Greek than there were Jews in Palestine. Well, those people faced the, the threat and the appeal of assimilation. Uh, they stuck out like a sore thumb in the neighborhood surrounded by Greeks who they got along with, but the temptation was to conform and not to be that different to the point where some Jews uh, who were going to the gymnasium, the, the, the exercise place uh, where you had to be among the gumnoi, the naked, uh, they were afraid people would laugh at them for being circumcised because they the Romans tended to think that was disgusting. Uh, and so some of these guys, you ever wonder what Paul means in 1 Corinthians where he says, if you're circumcised, don't try to remove the marks of circumcision. What? What would that mean? Well, it was an operation called the epispasm where you would uh, pull the... Uh, skin of the penis <laughs> down uh, to create a new foreskin. Good God! Oh, man. Uh, but uh, that was common enough to be addressed in the epistle. And so if you became a Christian, uh, you, uh, you'd you say, well, it's it's biblical. 
It's the same God. What the heck? Uh, uh, we're not really, we're not becoming uh, Apollo worshipers or something. What the heck? And so a lot of assimilating Jews uh, became Christians. And so all these things working together um, are easily sufficient to explain how in uh, the two or three centuries, uh, Christianity's numbers became huge. I just need to mention one other kind of silly yeah. contrast. Yeah. Um, this guy that does the tectonics ministries or apologetics or whatever, uh, somebody Turkle, I think his name is, he did this book called The Impossible Faith. Uh, Richard Carrier wrote a rejoinder to it that really took yeah. it apart. And Turkle's theory was that Christianity must have seemed so stupid and repulsive uh, that uh, no one would have joined unless the Holy Spirit had hypnotized them uh, or uh, that they were impressed by the resurrection, though, of course, by that time, no one could have proven it anyway. But uh, that's just, uh, that is such an insult to the Christian faith. It's hard for me to imagine a Christian mounting such an argument. Uh, okay, it didn't require some kind of miracle of persuasion, but that's a good thing for Christianity, isn't it? I mean, that says very good things about the Christian faith, and I should think that's what Christians would be proud about. Well, now just quickly, the other book I would recommend yep. takes place a little bit later and on different terms. That's Bart Ehrman's The Triumph of Christianity. And uh, that goes into the role of Constantine and all that. And all I know to say about that, I've, I've read the book and even interviewed Bart about it, but I, I tend to confuse it with uh, Starks, I guess. Um, but the, the patronage of the emperor Constantine obviously had uh, a lot to do with the dominance of, uh, of Christianity. Um, the... Um, the army was already heavily populated by Christians. They weren't persecuted or anything. Uh, they got, we have evidence that they got along real well with the pagan troops. And uh, so uh, when, and Constantine may have been a Christian himself, uh, it kind of looks like he was, according to some scholars. There are four accounts of the vision at the Milvian Bridge, you know, right before his battle with the, um, the uh, rival Roman emperor. Uh, and uh, according to two of them, uh, the Cairo sign appeared to him and the voice said, conquer by this, and he became a Christian. But there are two more modest versions of it that say simply that he saw that battle standard and, and adopted it, but he was already a Christian. Uh, and uh, so, uh, and that kind of explains why he was so into Christological theology, right? He's the guy that summoned the bishops for the Council of Nicaea. Right. He made it known that he supported Athanasius and so on. Uh, when he died, he had arranged this thing where there'd be in like a big clock uh, design, um, you would have slabs each containing what they could scrape up of the so-called relics of the 12 apostles. And he was at number 12. Uh, implying maybe that he thought he was the second coming or something. Uh, who knows? But 
he he may have been a Christian, but whether he was or not, he made Christianity uh, legal. He was also the head of uh, the uh, religion of the Invincible Son, more or less identified with Mithras. He was the Pontifex Maximus of that, as well as the head of the church. Which is Pope right now, isn't it? Isn't that the same office that Pope has right now in 2020? I believe so, yeah. yeah. In fact, all the, the, the clerical vestments of the Catholic Church were based on Roman civic officialdom and, and their uh, dress uniform, so to speak. Um, and uh, Plutarch, that mentions, Plutarch writes about the uh, office of Pontifus Maximus going back, he says, before Rhodes existed. They had that mm. title. It means high priest in Latin, basically. Mm. Or I think it's actually has Etruscan origins, the, the word itself. But that's Latin sort of comes from Etruscan, so, which makes sense. But mm. uh, obviously, I have to talk to a linguistic expert on that stuff. But that's just what basically what I've gathered from reading Plutarch, mm. um, which is interesting because Julius Caesar was Pontifus Maximus. Augustus was Pontifus Maximus. Mm. And then all the emperors from then down to, I think, Constantine. And then I think Constantine was the first emperor to give someone else that title, if I'm not mistaken. I don't know, but I, I have always read that he was simultaneously the head of the church and the yeah. Pontifex Maximus of Sol right. Invictus. So, yeah, I think that's what it was. I think he was the last one. Yeah, I think that's what it was. Okay. But, yeah, so that's 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 fascinating because it's, it shows you how the, the church itself converted Roman imperial cult as, like, an entity. Like, they mm. converted not everyone, but, like, Constantine, for example, he gets converted, and then, obviously— he starts this growth movement within Roman statesmanship, if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. So it was Theodosius after him right. that made it the official religion, and that certainly was a shot in the arm for church growth. Because uh, I don't know if it was he himself or, or shortly thereafter, the Roman Christian government said, uh, "You pagans can keep going to your temples, but when they need repair, you can't repair them." Uh, don't fix them up. If they fall into a heap of stones, that's the way it is. And then still later, uh, you had Christians leading uh, riots, uh, defacing and destroying pagan temples. Sure. I don't know if there was ever any real persecution of pagans. I, I just have never really read about that one way or the other. But it you wouldn't need it because you had tax breaks and stuff if you were a Christian, just like in uh, in Islam when it spread. Uh, you, you, unless you converted to Islam, you had an added tax levied on you and so forth. So you don't really need outright persecution and suffering to, to do this. I want to circle back to some of the stuff you talked about. But before I even get to that, let's let's get some super chats that are on here. Oh, we have yeah. Mika Voland. Thank you for the super chat. She asks, do the do you think the original Christians were heretical Gnostics that became a new religion? Well, I think I that may means. be. I think, she, I think I know what she means. She means like a, a heretical sect of Judaism that we would look back and think of as Gnostics. Maybe not exactly Gnostics because they know that term is very loose. But I think mm. I, you, know, you know what she means, right? Like basically. Uh, yeah, partly because... Uh, Catholic slash Orthodox Christianity sometimes looks like a, a kind of kindergarten version of Gnosticism, uh, like the the milk instead of the meat. 
because even in the New Testament, you have language like that. Uh, the letter to the Hebrews, 1 Corinthians. I only wish I could tell you the, the real mysteries. And to a, a small elite, I can, uh, Paul says. Uh, but the rest of you, you know, technically, you're among the pneumaticoi, the spiritual ones. But in fact, aren't you behaving like uh, the sarkikoi, the fleshly ones? Uh, so come on, you know, uh, become what you really are. Mm. And uh, so that implies there was some kind of secret tradition. And certainly Clement of Alexandria in the late second century thought so. Uh, he uh, he was very clear on that. And, uh, and he's not usually even considered a Gnostic, but he said that Gnosis is more important than faith. Well, that's already kind of Gnostic. It, it almost doesn't matter. It doesn't really matter what you thought the higher knowledge was, uh, but it's Gnostic if you take that approach. And I, uh, I, I think that, uh, like, uh, it was um, Harnack, the great church historian, who said he thought that that um, the idea of the incarnation, oddly enough, comes from Gnosticism, because that was the major precedent for believing that the the jesus of nazareth character that people saw was an earthly copy or or something of of a heavenly being who had existed beforehand and of course there are many variations on incarnationism but who knows if he was right but that makes sense to me and it seems to me that you could take that a little farther and say well uh, where'd they get the sacrament system probably from older mystery religions. Yep. And uh, where'd they get this idea of Jesus as a wonder worker? Well, probably from older uh, beliefs about Pythagoras and Hercules and all that who had their worshipers. So yep. it does seem to me it's derivative as any syncretistic movement is, right. which doesn't debunk it. I mean, uh, to me, that deepens the whole thing. I agree. It makes it more fascinating. Yeah. The next question is not a super chat, but it's coming from a friend of mine who's jumping. He's jumping in and asking a question. And uh, this is my buddy Lev. How you doing, Lev? He has a channel. He has a channel called Break the Rules. If you all want to go subscribe, it's a great channel. They get into big debates on politics, religion, history, all that philosophy. He he hosts debates. He gets people from different opposing worldviews puts them together and have them talk really fascinating stuff, but he wanted to come on and talk to Dr. Bob and, and I wanted to introduce him and ask a question. Here you go. The floor is yours, love. Excellent. Uh, Neil, thank you so much for having me on. It is a great pleasure, Dr. Price to uh, uh, speak to you. Finally, uh, the question that I have, I mean, honestly, I have thousands of questions, but I don't want to uh, lay all of them upon you at once. So if I had to choose one question, it would be in relation to the uh, Kabbalah. So there were uh, several rabbis at around the time of the uh, destruction of the uh, Second Temple. For example, uh, Shimon Bar Yochai, who was the writer of the Zohar, who was not that kind towards the uh, Romans for uh, what they were doing at the time. But then we uh, have this pattern, I see, of Christianity absorbing certain uh, mystical traditional principles having to do with Hermeticism, for example. You have various writers in the Middle Ages talking about that. 
So I've, I've always wondered, and I do see personally a connection between the Kabbalah and various things that may have come before it through the mystery traditions, even something like yoga, for example, something like in Hinduism, the system of Kundalini, chakras, all these things. So I do see there being a certain re repeated pattern. But where do you see this in connection to uh, Christianity specifically? Well, uh, the uh, I did an article years ago called Stranger in Paradise about uh, uh, 2 Corinthians 12, 1 through 10, Paul's uh, journey to the third heaven. Uh, and I said, if you look close at this and at accounts of visionary ascensions uh, in the Kabbalah hundreds of years later, it looks very similar. Uh, the, the ascension, the... Uh, the uh, being assaulted by angels, as Paul says, uh, a thorn in the flesh was given to me so that I wouldn't become too swell-headed over the extravagance of the visions. And uh, an, an angel of Satan was sent to pummel me. That's kind of dressed up euphemistically in some translations. But this is like um, in, in the Hecaloth and other texts, I'm probably mispronouncing that. They said that if the the ascending mystic uh, wasn't didn't watch his step, if he was unworthy, he would be set upon by angels and archons. Isn't that what Paul is talking about exactly? Uh, and and then there are there are other things like the Christology of Jesus sitting at the right hand of God. This is so much like uh, all this stuff with the lesser Yahweh, uh, the angel of Yahweh, my name is in him, and various glorified Old Testament patriarchs sitting at the right hand of God, transfigured into a fiery angel form and all that. Okay, there's a lot of years between them, but it seems to me you've got the 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 uh, surviving bones uh, of a creature you can reconstruct uh, that this was the same thing going on and finally there is a really interesting book by the uh, neglected Hugh Schoenfield uh, more infamous for the Passover plot which constantly by the way gets misrepresented uh, people who've never read it uh, misrepresent his argument um, in a book called the those incredible Christians he goes into the Christology of Ephesians and Colossians and shows how this sounds an awful lot like the Adam Cadmon and the Kabbalistic accounts of creation and he convinced me uh, in, uh, in fact, I kind of expound that in my uh, in the, th the uh, third volume of uh, my Holy Fable series. So I think, th and we know from the Dead Sea Scrolls, they already had elements of the Merkava mysticism. So it seems to me that there is a direct line of, of descent or ascension, if you prefer. Very interesting. If I may ask one more question, this one's been very uh, burning uh, inside of me from the various things that very reactionary people have written about uh, my own people. My mom is Jewish and my uh, father is a uh, Russian. And so I see myself as being part of these uh, two different halves, uh, which I think is a very interesting experience to uh, have. But regarding uh, the things that they talk about the Jewish people, uh, sp specifically Christians, they have this theory that the Jews of today are actually the descendants of the Edomites 
and they look at people, for example, like uh, King Herod the Great being an Edomite, and they have this theory that Jesus was supposed to be the proper way Judaism should have continued, but then the Edomites took over, the sons of Esau, and uh, uh, then everything became cursed afterwards with the Jewish people, which is why they were persecuted in the Middle Ages. So that's the theory that has gone on on the internet for a long time, and I was very interested if you can speak upon speak upon that, because they don't think that Jewish people like myself, for instance, are the true Jews. You know, they think that the oh, true is this Jews... Israel only? Is this an Israel only type of thing? Like uh... I think so. It's yeah. probably connected to that. Well, the only thing like that I've heard, and it is kind of similar, is that today's so-called Jews are not the biblical people of Israel because um, a whole lot of Khazar folks mm. from Central Asia converted to Judaism. Yeah, that's the and, other one. That's actually that's that's a kind of strange hair splitting thing. Yeah. If they converted to Judaism, that makes them Jews. Right. Uh, you're raising an ethnic question that I think is moot in Orthodox Judaism. Uh, and uh, it's sort of like Ruth, if you convert to it, you're one of us. And right. uh, the Edomite thing, well, Herod apparently was uh, Edomite and or half Arab. Uh, and he married into the um, Hasmonean line by marrying the last known princess of the Herodian, uh, I'm, I'm sorry, of the Hasmonean line. But why anybody would think he is a typical Jew rather than an anomaly, because that's one reason contemporary Jews hated the guy. Right. He's no real Jew. Uh, and uh, so, I, but this variation, I, I've never heard. And it, it just reeks of some kind of horrific anti-Semitism. Yeah. Ugh. But it's a, it's an interesting question because there's a lot of that going on right now. There's, there's the mm. British Israelites. There's all these different groups of people that claim to be the real Jews. And I don't know what it is about this people wanting to be Jews. It's so it's a weird, strange thing. It was fascinating though. Well, they're they're in their own echo chambers, and there is nobody really to confront them and to actually go into detail about a lot of these things with them, which yeah. is part of the problem. Yeah, which is why we asked questions like you like you just did. It was a great question. And Lev, dude, it's been great having you having you jump on for a little Cheers. while. And once again, everyone, break the rules podcast. Just type it in the YouTube out, a search engine; it'll pop right up. Breaktherules.tv. Also, follow me on Twitter at Levpo L E V P O. Thank you so much, Doctor Price. Mm -hmm. I hope to uh, talk with you more. Yeah, you bet. Great. See you later. Take care. Lev. See ya. You know, All one right. thing about the British Israel movement, since you mentioned it in a really uh, fascinating shocker of a book called After Auschwitz, Ruben, uh, uh, Richard Rubenstein, there are two guys named that. This is the earlier writer in the 60s. Uh, he said that he, he was one of the, the death of God theologians, and he said that the Nazi Holocaust ought to put an end to claims by Jews that uh, they are the, the apple of God's eye and that he is watching over them. He says, well, if, if this is uh, uh, divine providence, we need something else. So th that was sort of shocking. But he said, why are we persecuted? And he said, it's because we have incited um, others to envy us. It's what uh, um, 
Rene Girard calls uh, uh, mimetic rivalry. If somebody else says we're the chosen people, you want to say, oh, no, we're the chosen people. But what British Israelism did was to do that in a non-anti-Semitic way because they specifically claim that they are the lost tribes of Israel. Uh, they wouldn't, uh, if you're a, a Jew from Judah, hey, look, they got no argument uh, with you. The, I mean, nobody else really except the Israel-only folks are claiming that uh, somebody who cl else who claims to be a Jew is not like that because like the uh, identity of the lost tribes is is open for the taking because they disappeared. Uh, they must have been assimilated uh, among uh, Assyrian colonists. Uh, but uh, the uh, people have thought the American Indians were, were some sort of lost extension of Israel. But that's not anti-Semitic. They're just sort of, they, they are admiring uh, Jews and the privilege of Judaism and just want in on it rather than stealing it. So I, I feel like I should you know, give them at least that much credit. Yeah, it's fascinating how you see these groups pop up and claim had all these origins and backgrounds, and it's very fascinating. And like you said, the uh, the Khazars who converted to Judaism, I was watching a documentary about that, and they basically had a choice to be Muslims. Uh, the, the, I think it's the king, some, some whoever, some somebody had a choice, king, emperor, whoever it was of the Khazars, they had a choice to become a convert to Islam, make it an, a, a new Islamic empire or a Christian empire. And he said, you know what? Why don't we just be Jews and we could just be in the middle of everybody? And so huh. there's sort of a buffer state between the two empires. Huh. Oh, I nice, didn't know that. Wow. Yeah, it's fascinating stuff. But um, yeah, the Khazars. And I think, I'm not, and I'm just, now I'm speculating, I think those are the people who migrated into Eastern Europe. And that's why you have so many Jewish populations in uh, Germany and Poland. But that, that I, could I, be. Yeah, I'm, I'm just I'm speculating. I could be wrong about that. Huh. But how else do they get there? You know, they, had to, they, don't, they didn't just teleport. You know, they had to get there somehow. But so let's, let's go to the next Super Chat. Can you talk about Jesus' score on the rank Ragian mythotype and its relation to Greek stuff like Homeric epics, Heraclitus, Cratism, Platonism? It's a high level. This is high level stuff right here. Does that make sense to you? Jesus. Oh, well, uh, yeah, like the Lord Raglan uh, and, and some others came up with this list of features in. Uh, oh, right, right. OK. And that the, 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 the mythic hero archetype. Oh. Uh, and, and so I think that's what he's talking about. How closely does Jesus fit that? Well, real close, uh, just about every element of it and a couple they didn't even put in. Uh, like uh, Jesus' birth is announced by uh, in some heavenly way from a god or an angel or signaled by a star or both. Uh, and uh, he may have, well, Jesus is said to have uh, been um, generated by a, a miraculous uh, impregnation without uh, a human father. And there are all kinds of variations on that, like the, uh, the mother might not be a virgin, but still was impregnated by a god, so the, the hero is not uh, the, the earthly father's son, etc. Uh, then there's often a, uh, a child prodigy story uh, where he, the kid knows 
uh, more than the adults, like Jesus in the temple, similar story about Solomon. Uh, I think there's a similar story about Krishna and various others. Uh, then uh, he, uh, well, there there are some where you have a uh, something like a baptism story, like Zoroaster uh, pretty much gets baptized and then is approached by the archangel Vohumana, who gives him a cup of... Uh, uh, some sort of flaming liquid that uh, enlightens him as to the truth, probably some re reference to a hallucinogen or something. And wow. he is sent to proclaim the oneness of Ahura Mazda. He's immediately tempted by um, by Ahriman, the evil anti-god. Yeah, give this up. You don't want to waste your time with it. Nope, sorry, I'm doing it. Same thing with the Buddha. Mara the tempter uh, appears And to if I may jump in for one second, he says to him, if you denounce your worship of uh, Hora Mazda and worship me, I will give you the boon to rule all nations. That's what mm. it says in my, my English translation mm. from, from uh, Oxford. The boon to rule all nations. It sounds a lot like what's happening in Matthew. Matthew 4, when he's in the desert, and the devil's like, by the way, the devil, the term the devil comes from Zoroastrian. If you don't go through the entire Old Testament, the devil does not show up once. There is no devil in Judaism. I don't know if it came later, but as far as the Old Testament, there's no devil. I don't even know if there's a devil in Judaism. Uh, yeah, there, there is like at least a trickster Satan, but right. he's never been all that important. But I don't think he's um, ever called the devil, is he? I don't know, uh, but right. the... There, I have heard two very different accounts as to why, uh, as to what devil means. Um, well, there's one popular thing that the devil is just evil with an extra letter on the front, and that God is just good minus an O, but that's just that's all uh, English. That's all English is, the yeah, it's all English. false cognates and so on. <laughs> but there are two legitimate ones. Uh, some trace devil back to Deva. Uh, the uh, Zoroastrian and Vedic uh, um, word for, for gods or titans, depending on who you're listening to. But uh, I tend to favor the idea that since it occurs in the New Testament in Greek as diabolos, which devil is obviously derivative of, diabolos means the same thing as Satan, because the Satan is the accuser, the adversary, the prosecuting attorney, uh, and which is what he does even most of the time in the New Testament. He's not really an evil character until they uh, merge him with Ahriman, Leviathan, and right. Beelzebul. Um, and they don't in every New Testament reference necessarily. But uh, Diabolos means hurler, the, the one who casts aspersions or hurls accusations. And so that the devil and Satan mean the same thing, and neither was originally uh, a proper name. Yeah, that's, 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 that's a fascinating thing because that, that they take the whole Satan character and they mm -hmm. take what what from Judaism he basically was God's district attorney. He's there mm -hmm. to accuse you. He's there mm -hmm. to accuse Job, whoever the situation is, uh, and maybe tempt you as well. And then all of a sudden you get to Christianity, and he's a, a whole plethora. He's basically Hades incarnate. He's basically Angra Manu. He's basically Pluto. He's basically all these all these mm -hmm. dark gods that you see in all these religions. They're like personifying the one, the evil, the evil incarnate who's Satan. So he mm -hmm. gets. He gets lumped in, like you said, with ba with Baal, with with uh, with 
Angermanu from Zoroastrianism with with Satan, Lucifer, I guess, so, somehow goes in there, which is very weird because Lucifer is not necessarily evil. In that's right, Jesus is called the morning star, morning star in the book of Revelation. And that's that's what Hesiod wrote about. He calls him Prosperous or something like that. But I guess mm. later on, the Latin the poet Ovid is using the same mythos, the same character, but he renames him as Lucifer, which in Latin means light bringer. So you got mm -hmm. this character who is just a normal god. He's like a son of Zeus or something like that. Just a random, regular, from the lineage of all the gods. I don't know which, which where exactly where he comes from. Could be from Saturn. I'm not sure. I'm just making He's it. the planet Venus, the morning star. Exactly. He's not necessarily, not necessarily evil. But right. somehow, and who knows how, he come, becomes lumped in with Satan. And mm -hmm. Satan becomes a fallen angel. Which, by the way, the whole fallen angel idea... I think comes from Enoch when this angel named Azazel, it's not Satan, it's named Azazel, falls from heaven because he taught men how to make swords and money, or not money, metals and fire. Weirdly like, uh, the, what's the god's name from Greek mythology who teaches how to make fire? Uh, Prometheus. Prometheus. Sounds like, very sounds very Promethean in that story. So like, basically what I'm getting at is, long story short, is I think the Christian writers are looking at all these mythos and all these characters and they're coming up with this how they want to define satan is this is what he is yeah my guess is that this started in judaism as uh, an answer to the question of theodicy how can there be a good uh, how can an evil world full of suffering and tragedy be the creation of a good god and uh they uh, and originally they said, well, God is beyond good and evil. It says a couple of places in the Old Testament. But eventually they moralized the idea of holiness so that it didn't mean overwhelming otherness, alienness that uh, just made you cringe. Um, and, and said, no, it means moral perfection. And once they did that, you, you had a, a theodicy problem. How could God be so morally perfect and have created this? And so uh, they, during, like uh, after the exile, Judaism essentially became a, a new local variant of Zoroastrianism, at right. least what became rabbinic Judaism did. And they figured Ahriman or Angramanyu came in handy because suppose there is an, an anti-god who is who has created all of this evil. That gets the good god off the hook. Right. But there was still a problem because that means uh, Jehovah is not uh, all powerful. Even right. if we know he's going to win in the end, he's got a real fight on his hands in the meantime. And yeah. so they said, well, okay, let's say that uh, our version of Ahriman is a fallen angel. Sorry, that just ruins the whole thing, because how could God allow him to become evil uh, right. if he was a creature? So, But that, I think, is what how it began. He became the, uh, the scapegoat for God. Yeah. Uh, before, before I get to the next Super Chat, I, I showed it on the screen, but I forgot to mention Derek from Myth Vision. Thank you for the Super Chat. Uh, Melody Joy. Thank you for the Super Chat. Omad Iranpana, cool Super Chat train. Love these dudes. Thank you so much. Hey, thank you. If you, have no, if you don't have a que you, if no questions and you're just giving the Super Chat, I really appreciate that. Thank you. Like That means a lot to me if you're just helping me out a lot. So thank you for that. Um, yeah, you had Myth Vision. You had uh, Melody Joy. And then there's another one that just popped up. 
it was a question. So let me get to that one now. Let me just find it. Let's see. It is right here. No, nope, that's Omid again. Should I just finish up the one about Lord Ragland? Yeah, yeah, sure. Go ahead. Uh, the the archetypal hero uh, is tempted to forsake his path. He doesn't do it. Uh, he may well be a miracle worker, as, as Jesus is depicted. Uh, he um, has royal blood somehow and is the rightful king. And, of course, Matthew and Luke imply that. Uh, then he is proclaimed king, just as uh, Hosanna and the Palm Sunday and so forth, the people acclaim him king. But then uh, his fans turn on him and he's given up to the authorities and dies on top of a hill, interestingly, and uh, not necessarily crucified, but that's what happened there. And then there is uh, confusion over where the body is buried as with Moses, like nobody knows. Uh, and then uh, there, he may appear to his followers after death. And then ascension into heaven is quite common. A really mind-blowing book about this is uh, M. David Litwa, L-I-T-W-A, um, called um, Jesus Deus, Jesus the God. It is phenomenal. It shows again and again and again how these things are repeated he, he's he's arguably the best scholar there is right now i'm, I'm oh, just, just putting that out there and, I, and that's a big comment for me because i love i love a lot of you guys you were you're up there you're in my top five dr price <laughs> but m david litwell between that book um the evil creator and oh that's great too oh man and then he, he translated the hermetica it's called the hermetica too if you ever read through that yet I'm uh, not his well, version of it. Mind blowing stuff. I had him on, mm. I actually had him on to talk about that. So mm. amazing. He has so much in there that makes you really look at what was going on in that time period and mm. the whole mystery religions, the hermeticism and Horus and his mother Isis, all that's in there. But anyways, we have, is that, is, are you finished? I'm by the way, I, I apologize yeah. for cutting you off while you were answering that person's question. Vesper, I apologize. No. For I tend to do that. I get carried away. I get so into it. You know, you know how it is, guys. Um, well, that especially happens when you have a guest uh, when you have a guest who won't shut the hell up. <laughs> yeah. So the next question was from somebody asking about Constantine's mother. Here it is. Was Constantine's mother a Christian? Uh, yes, apparently so. I don't know when she is supposed to have converted if she did, but my guess is she was probably born and raised a Christian and raised Constantine as one. I mean, you still have some people that say Constantine was converted to Christianity, but I, I find myself persuaded by the arguments that no, he was raised a Christian. And so by a mom who, who was a Christian. Now, isn't she the same woman who claimed to found the true cross and that's 19th. right that's yeah. fascinating yeah she decided these things must be out there so she sent a team to go find them and uh, collect them it's, she was sort of a predecessor of william f albright in the 50s uh who figured he was a he was a presbyterian and a kind of an apologist and uh, he pioneered biblical archaeology, as it's become famous, where he said, OK, uh, we're going to use the Bible as a guidebook. If it says there was uh, 
these great stables of Solomon, and we can find some stables, that must have been it. If it says there was Sodom and uh, we found a big town uh, in ruins, that's Sodom. And uh, it's all circular. And it seems to me that's just what uh, Helena was doing. Uh, it's just the, there's got to be, it's a pin the tail on the Bible, I call it. And what's so fascinating about it is it's almost like apologists are already starting out right away. Like as soon as you can, as soon, yeah. as, the, as, soon as Constantine's mother converts to Christianity, she's an apologist right away. Oh yeah, mm. I found the nativity scenes right here. I found the mm. true cross it's right here. It's like it's just like already you right off the bat. There's apologists going on. Um, Doc Jojo Freelancer asked a question early in the beginning, and we sort of talked about it when you, in your opening uh, statement. But maybe we can touch up on it again. He was talking about was Christianity what it was in the first century if, compared to what it became in the second century. Is it are they are they different or are this were they like he's saying? Is there a big difference between the two? Well, one big difference is that um, in the second century, you have this explosion of different types of Christianity uh, with uh, the, these numerous Gnostic groups that probably wouldn't have recognized each other. In fact, we know there were polemics between them, uh, the Sethians, the Fibionites, the Valentinians, the Basilideans, and more and more and more. And uh, the various Jewish Christian groups, the Ebionites, the Nazareans, and so on and so on. Uh, there were groups related, uh, but not exactly Christians. Like there, there appear to be Zoroastrian Christians uh, and uh, um, uh, uh, Melchizedekians and so forth, whom St. Augustine mentions that were still around and uh, believed that Melchizedek was greater than Jesus. And he was warning him, now, hold on a minute. Uh, well, where did these things come from? Well, the standard Eusebian model of church history was in the first century, it was all one big happy family. Luke in the book of Acts says the same thing. But uh, where do we get all these weirdos? Well, uh, could it be Satan? Uh, yes, indeed, it was. He came in. It's just like in the parable of the wheat and the weeds in Matthew, uh, he came in planting these phony, insane doctrines to lead people astray. And uh, that's why. And, and there was even the attempt to say that it was all just one shop working to turn out heresies. A heresies are us. Uh, and uh, one was the disciple of the, of the one before him and all that. So what they're trying to do is to marginalize the, the non-Catholic types of Christianity as, uh, as all together. It's just one option, even though it looks the hydra-headed heresy. It's really all one thing. Uh, uh, and uh, so you got that is the bifurcation fallacy, right? Oh, there's only two options and you should pick ours. But also they try to distance it, marginalize it in time by saying that this happened later. But there's no reason to think that. In fact, um, the evil creator uh, book, that, that uh, makes it pretty clear that you already had this wild profusion of, of Christian ideas in the first century. 
uh, they're they're trying the the later Christians are trying to say, oh no, that was just some kind of cancerous mutation. Later, no, no, it looks like Walter Bauer uh, said that it was very diverse at the beginning, and one form of it managed to stamp out the others. In fact, Doctor uh, Doctor um, uh, Bart Ehrman in Lost Christianities, he wrote a book. This was like twenty years ago, but he uh, he was I interviewed him on on the subject recently. And he says the same thing. There was probably, it was more diverse in the first century than it is today. Mm. He said mm. that, I'm, I'm not even joking. This is, a, this, this is a paraphrase of what he actually said. He said that Mormons and Catholics have more in common than, uh, than two different sects of Christians in the early first century. Mm. And, and the reason why is because they all agree on who Jesus was. He, was. he was God incarnate. He died and resurrected. But in the first century, you couldn't find two different sects that agree on that. They might think mm-hmm. Jesus is some different. He's a prophet. He's mm-hmm. an angel. He's this. That's how different it was back then. So he said that mm-hmm. and that's a really strong, powerful statement that Mormons mm-hmm. and Catholics, you think of those as polar opposites today, but they actually have more in common than first century Christians did. Um, yeah. And uh, this isn't a super chat, but it's a good question. It says, it says, uh, Scott DCS said, I just read the ancient mysteries by Marvin Meyer. Which Robert Price book should I follow up with? This is a good ending question on because we want to talk about your books. So plug away. Um, I guess maybe deconstructing Jesus, uh, where I uh, sort of zero in on Burton Mack's view. He he also basically says that Jesus, as we know him in the Gospels, is not the root of Christianity, but the fruit of Christianity. Uh, that there was a lot going on that sort of settled out in this eventually. And uh, I take that and, and make some modifications on it. But I, I try to show that, that how there were these, like uh, Mac already delineates three or four Jesus movements and about as many Christ cults, as he calls them. I wrote him once and said, I love this book, but I it seems to me you're saying that Christianity had multiple roots, that it didn't vary from a starting point. Uh, and uh, because he talks about the idea of a big bang origin of, of Christianity. And uh, I said, you, you then don't think there was one beginning point. He said, yeah, that's right. I don't. And uh, so, yeah, it, it became unitary when the, the, uh, the Catholic, uh, the Roman authorities managed to uh, stamp everybody else out. Uh, and and so I deal with that. Also, you might take a look at my uh, huge book, the pre-Nicene New Testament, nice. where I try to pick up the scraps of rival forms of Christianity and hypothetically reconstruct like the Gospel of Marcion, the Gospel according to the Hebrews, and nice. things like that to give you. Because my teacher, Helmut Kester at Harvard Divinity School, uh, said that he thinks the best canon is the most inclusive. And that always stuck with me. So I thought, let me make up such a canon. So I have, instead of 27, I have, a, what is it, a 54 books in my New Testament. And wow. uh, I recommend that. You should publish that. You should get, get, get oh, it. Published. Oh, that is actually published? You didn't just, yeah. okay. I thought, you were, I thought you were just writing about that. And like, mm. you actually published the text itself. Yeah, yeah, and uh, wow. it, it was published by Signature Books, which is run by a liberal Mormon. 
I'm mm-hmm. going to go get a copy myself now, now that I know about that. That's awesome. It's pretty neat, I have to say. Yeah, so that's that's fascinating. We have a couple that just popped in at the last minute that I just got notified for some reason. I don't know what's, maybe because I'm looking at StreamYard from backwards and it's coming up later. Anyways, he said, it's another from the same person. It says, can you explain a little bit about the significance of the bearded versus non-bearded depictions of Christ in early Christian art? Well, uh, the theory about the beardless Jesus, the young man, is that they nobody really had any idea what uh, Jesus would have looked like. And so they just borrowed the standard depiction of Apollo, wow. uh, and uh, who was young and beardless and uh, the curly oh. hair and all that. Uh, I'm not sure. Uh, apparently, that was the earlier way to depict Jesus. I think Justin Martyr said we know Jesus had a beard because he thought that a passage in Jeremiah, I'm not sure, one of the prophets must be predicting Jesus where it says, um, I gave my back to the smiters and to those who pluck out the beard. Oh, well, if that's Jesus, he must have had a beard. Uh, and uh, But I, I'm not sure when the bearded Jesus idea came in. And then you got the Ser- Serapis uh, <clears throat> icons that people thought looked like Jesus. So it's like mm-hmm. maybe it would, maybe they were like it's just like a, a thing in people's minds. They're trying to figure yeah. out a healer god because he's like mm-hmm. a Sclepius. You know, Serapis is like a mix of a Sclepius and Osiris and all these diff- healer gods, mm-hmm. right? So maybe they're thinking Jesus mm-hmm. heals. He must look like that. I don't know. I'm just throwing stuff out. Yeah, there. I wouldn't be surprised. Yeah, and, and there's just two more. I think two or yeah, two more. I was recently told that Eastern Orthodox for a long time was time were suspicious of Revelation and questioned if it should be in the New Testament canon. Thoughts? Yeah, um, this was finally agreed on in some kind of a compromise around the year 600 because the Eastern uh, churches didn't like Revelation. It, it was it seemed fanatical and crazy. Uh, probably uh, nuts were already uh, making uh, too much of it, like Hal Lindsey and Charlie Manson both did. Uh, but um, uh, but the uh, David Koresh, I mean, it's like the favorite hunting ground of, of lunatics. Right. However, I happen to love the book of Revelation. It yeah. is just a masterpiece. It really is. Uh, but the, the thing is, they thought it was too crazy. And um, the... Western churches liked it okay. Not everybody, but a lot of them did. But they didn't like the letter to the Hebrews. I suspect because of the business about apostasy being an unforgivable sin. That that could have had something to do with a novation uh, problem and, and all that. Uh, because a lot of people did uh, jump ship, and uh, then some of them wanted back in after the, the fire died down. They had nothing doing. Uh, you had your chance. Well, the uh, apparently the uh, the Western Church didn't like that, but the Eastern Church did. So finally, they came up with this compromise. Look, all right, uh, we'll hold our nose and accept Revelation if you'll accept Hebrews, and they did. And so both of them got in there. I think it was Dr. Elaine Pagels. I think I was watching her being interviewed by Derek from Mythfish, mm. and she said something along the lines of. They thought a heretic wrote it. And because a lot of it sounds real like pagany, like they're talking about Hades gave up their dead and, and uh, death gave up its dead. 
okay, those are, those are two characters from Greek mythology. What are they doing in there? But ultimately, when it gets down to it, there, there's a reason why they actually ultimately loved it. And it had to do with this, something to do with Jesus, his return, his fulfillment, and uh, making sure that Rome, or that in the end, I think that just like, for some reason, in the, the way it fulfilled the rest of the, the, the beginning of the New Testament, they thought that it was divinely inspired and that the events were going to happen, that Rome was going to be taken down. Rome was this evil entity that the church is Satan, whatever, you know, long story short, they ended up liking it and they ended up ignoring those little tiny parts that I mentioned. Could be, though, I have to admit, uh, it is kind of baffling to understand how they let it stay in there when it clearly says Jesus was supposed to be coming soon right. vis-a-vis the, the author. And everybody thought it was written in the time of Domitian, which it may have been. But some people think in the time of Nero, like, I'm coming soon? Uh, it's surprising to me that it did, actually. Yeah, um, that's <laughs> a good question. Um, let's see. The next one is, this is the last one, I believe. Revelation and Hebrews, related to what we just talked about. Revelation and Hebrews are weird writings that do not fit with the rest of the New Testament. Why were they included? We just talked. Wow, that is perf- NPC Porky, you are a prophet. This question was already submitted before that you, you answered that last question. Yeah. Well, um, but Revelation, to add a little to that, it could be, it could have something to do with the, the fact that, uh, Revelation claims to be the work of somebody named John. Uh, now, who uh, who is that supposed to be? Most people thought John, son of Zebedee, but already in the four. And if that's the case, well, it's in. Uh, it, it's uh, it meets the uh, criterion of apostolicity. You you can't kick it out. But in order to get rid of it, Eusebius said nope. I don't think it was the same John. After all, doesn't Papias mention a John the Elder? Uh, I bet it was him, whoever he was. So we don't need it in there. And he, they thought that uh, Kiliasm, uh, the, the belief in a literal millennium, was a big mistake. And some thought that uh, the N- Jewish Gnostic Serinthus actually wrote the book. In fact, some thought Serinthus wrote the Gospel of John. Uh, and because uh, that's very Gnostic. By and, the way, John, uh, the Gospel of John itself feels very Gnostic. It talks about the logos in the beginning. Yeah. Yes, sir. That's a big yeah, and, The first three Gospels. The first three Gospels make it, make it known that Jesus was a man. He was born. He was a person who got baptized and then became the Son of God, basically. John saying, no, this, this logos is eternal and was always there. And he doesn't even get baptized in the Gospel of John. There's no need for baptism in John. Yeah. John, it's it's this is the pre-existing logos, which is a Gnostic concept, mm. in my opinion. Yeah, uh, it's it's really fascinating. As for Hebrews, like Martin Luther didn't like some of the uh, the Catholic epistles, so-called. He thought James and Jude really shouldn't be in there, and. Uh, uh, Hebrews, I forget whether he disliked that, but he couldn't have disliked it too much because he believed that that the author was Apollos, uh, a co- colleague of Paul. So he might have just thought that was on the level with the Apocrypha, 
of the Old Testament. He said uh, the, the Palestinian rabbis were right to exclude it from the official canon, but they were also right to recognize that they were edifying books. There's nothing heretical about them. He, Luther might have thought that about Hebrews, but they certain both have certainly caused a big problem. Like people, Baptists, for instance, believe in eternal security. Once saved, always saved. Yep. They got real problems with both of them because in Revelation chapter three, the letters to the seven churches, Jesus says, if you don't watch out, I'm going to erase you from the Lamb's book of life whoops, you were in it, but now you're not. They don't like that. In yeah. Hebrews, uh, you've uh, tasted of the, the wonders of the age to come and all that, but you, you think out on Jesus, you're damned. Oh, no, 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 that can't be. And boy, do they have their hands full trying to rationalize that away. And by the way, I, speaking about Hebrews, it reminds you about their... The, the, the Ebionite side of Christianity, because this Hebrews is very like Jesus is the high priest. It's talking mm -hmm. about all this, this like Jewish terminology, Melchizedek, a type of Christ and all this really strange stuff that doesn't exist anywhere else in the New Testament, except for right there in Hebrews. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, it does. It does stick out like a sore thumb. And he speaks about daily baptism, as I read it, when he says, well, I, we talked about the basics, like uh, the laying on of hands and baptisms, plural. Why would he say that? Well, if, if you were baptized every day, like the Qumran people and the Hamero Baptists, sounds to me like that's what's going on. And they sound very Qumran-like, uh, too. Yeah. So, yeah, you're yeah. right. So, Bill Castle, thank you for the $5 super sticker. Uh, Dr. Brown, if you have time for one more, someone just pop one in if you have time. Yeah, for sure. Okay, sure. Uh, how do you feel about Mormonism and how it shapes some of the American states? Thank you, Mr. Monster, for the super chat. Well, uh, it has its dark sides, as uh, all religions do. But if you look at them now, uh, they promote a very wholesome lifestyle. They're patriotic. Uh, they uh, care for each other it, with a fantastic system of benevolence and, and so forth. Uh, I think their, their uh, myth about the, their, their new exodus into the wilderness is uh, it's an application and a retelling of the Old Testament story, just extending it into the 19th century. Of course, it's not historically true, but neither is the story in the Bible. But really, who the heck cares? Uh, it's the symbolism that's important, as it always has been. Like Jacob Neusner, the great late great rabbi, he said that uh, the the Hebrew Bible is a collection of historical paradigms, uh, so that you can recognize. You can discern the signs of the times by saying, you know, this seems an awful lot like uh, the conditions that led to the Babylonian exile or or, or whatever, uh, and uh, we better take note. And uh, Mormonism is doing the same thing, and they're not some kind of insidious group. Uh, they have uh, um, polygamy, uh, but the uh, kind of underground. It's not legal, but it's sort of neglected by the authorities. If they can get that to work, well, what the heck? It's certainly biblical. You can't find any uh, any biblical thing against it. I'm not uh, condemning them for it. So they happen to be literalists in a naive way, but so is everybody else. I, I think they're right. a good influence. 
Yeah, that's a good point. Um, someone did actually pop one more up. If you mm -hmm. want it, you can do it for the next one, or if you want to answer no, it. Go ahead. Okay, the trouble is to get me to stop talking. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you, Converse Contender, for the super chat. Um, have you read Dr. Kirk McGregor's book that John was John the Elder? Thoughts. Also, would you would love to know what you think of Tom Holland's book, Dominion. Uh, what's the Holland book again? Uh, how, the Holland's book is Dominion. The, dark, the, Kirk, the Kirk McGregor's book is called a book that John was John the Elder. I've, I'm familiar with the debate, but I don't know of that book. It sounds interesting. Yeah, if you have, if you're in the chat, you could ask which book it is because I don't think he says the title of the book. He just says the book that has John is John the Elder, which is interesting. And the author's name again? Doctor Kirk McGregor. Kirk McGregor. Yeah, I should be. But but yeah, we can um maybe we can use that one. Maybe we can bring that one to the next time because you're going to be back. You know, you're mm, a regular yeah. on the show. And uh, mm. Converse Contender, we will look into that question for you. And, and what was the other one again? I'm sorry. Said mm -hmm. also would love to know what you think about Tom Holland's book Dominion. Okay, I'll try to look into that also. Yeah, and that's that. The, the, that rings a bell, but I'm sure I haven't read it. But but regardless, thank you for the super chat, and um, that's it for super chats. And this has been awesome. And everybody, thank you. 153 people watching right now. Huh. I think that might be a record for my channel. Huh. Not, not views total. I've I got like 30,000 views for one of my videos. But for one time for mm -hmm. watching live, this has to be a record. 156 huh. right now. So I hate to end it while I'm hot, but hey, you know, Dr. Bob's got stuff. He's got family and kids and out there. So, hey, uh, this has been great. And we'll definitely have you back on soon. And uh, Lenny, any last thoughts? Any closing comments? The floor is yours. Well, I would recommend a couple of my books uh, that you might not be familiar with. I have one called Judaizing Jesus uh, and uh, another called Merely Christianity. And a third uh, called uh, uh, When Gospels Collide. Uh, a fourth is about to come out, and this one is um, The Gospels Behind the Gospels. Uh, one other one that's been out for a while, but there hasn't been a whole lot of publicity for it, is called Reinterpreting the New Testament, an essay collection. And I'm just sure anybody watching this would find them interesting. Yeah, and then just go to Robert robertmprice.com. Is that what it is? Yeah, it's Robert M. Price with no dots or spaces. Right. Dot mindvendor.com. Okay, is there two websites? Because I'm pretty sure you there's a robertprice.com too, or is that something else? I, I'm not sure. Somebody else put up some sort of a website about me, and there are two yeah. versions of this one. We're trying to, to unify them into a... Oh, so is that, should we not direct people to that one? We should direct them to the mind vendor one? Is that what yeah. you prefer? Okay, yeah. so there you go, guys. When you're looking for his stuff, he prefers mm -hmm. that you go to the mind vendor uh, link. That is the mm -hmm. that is the official the official mm -hmm. Dr. Bob website. And mm -hmm. check that out. There's so much good blogs in there, book prices in there. Everything you want is all there. And by the way, your blogs are amazing. Your blogs are amazing. Uh, one of them, uh, the... Uh... Zarathustra Speaks, uh, which I post on uh, on my Patreon, uh, is 
just about to become a regular feature in the Christian New Age Quarterly, uh, and uh, which I've been writing for for uh, 30 years. Uh, and you might be interested wow. in pursuing that. Yeah, no, that I checked that one out before. The Zarathustra speaks is great. It's your your stuff is awesome. So thank you for coming on, and yeah, everybody. Thanks. You have just attained true gnosis. Hoo -hoo. <laughs>